0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 81 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week we've got a special interview with Dr. David Reed, the Scholar-in-Residence at UC Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Joe uh, sat down with David and they had a great chat about uh, cybersecurity policy and 5G spectrum auctions and, yeah, real uh, mixed bag stuff. So make sure you stick around for that. Uh, But first we'll do our usual roundup of security updates for the past week. Now, up first, we had an update for MUT. So I actually mentioned MUT in last week's episode, episode 80. Uh, this one was an additional vulnerability that was fixed, but also included a fix for a regression that could occur in that previous update. In this case, the vulnerability that was fixed uh, uh, was for all of the supported Ubuntu releases going back to 1204 extended security maintenance. Um, so that's 1204 uh, extended security maintenance, 16.04, 18.04, 20.04 long-term support, and 19.10. So in this case, uh, the vulnerability was that when connecting uh, to an IMAP, SMTP or POP3 server via um, TLS, so it then receives the start TLS uh, command, it could then go and read additional data that had been sent uh, you know, as the TLS connection was uh, told to be started. So essentially, that's a clear text uh, connection. So if someone can intercept that connection and inject their own content, uh, they could then inject additional data. But then when the TLS connection goes and gets negotiated, that could then be processed as sort of initial input to that connection. So essentially, arbitrary content injection uh, by an untrusted uh, third party. So that was fixed to basically just clear that input buffer uh, as it went to start TLS negotiation. And as I said, also included a fix for a possible regression in the previous security update uh, when connecting to some uh, secure servers. We then had an update for the NVIDIA graphics drivers. Uh, These applied to Ubuntu releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, In this case, it is both the NVIDIA graphics drivers and uh, the Linux kernel source package because that's used to generate the uh, DKMS uh, dynamic kernel module uh, builds for that as well. Uh, That basically just means that kernel modules get rebuilt whenever your kernel gets upgraded. So in this case, uh, the but being a binary driver we only have the details that nvidia have given us to go off of so in in the first case uh, the CUDA driver failed to properly perform access control during ipc and that could allow a local attacker to cause a denial of service or possible uh, arbitrary code execution we then had an issue in the UVM or the unified virtual memory driver this is used uh, with the CUDA driver to give better performance there was a race condition there that could allow a local attacker to again perform a denial of service And finally, there was a uh, unspecified vulnerability in the virtual guest GPU driver. So if you are using uh, NVIDIA and passing that through to uh, your VMs, uh, that could allow an attacker to perform certain privileged operations that could uh, uh, result in a denial of service as well. So they were all fixed uh, for the NVIDIA graphics drivers. Then we had an update for GW networking. Uh, This is one CVE that applied to Ubuntu releases 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and 19.10. Uh, This uh, GLib networking library is uh, used to provide kind of additional TLS support and things like that to uh, the GLib library itself. So GLib is uh, by the GNOME folks, and that's used for kind of a lot of low-level things uh, in GNOME, things like, you know, just general sockets and file accesses and uh, threading, all kinds of stuff, really. Uh, And so, yeah, this provides sort of TLS on top of that. In this case, uh, the library would uh, fail to validate the or verify, should I say, that the hostname of a server's TLS certificate matched the uh, expected hostname that it was connecting to, uh, and this would only occur though if the client failed to specify the hostname itself directly. Uh, so if you don't provide a hostname, you know, it would then go and fail, and so that would be you know normal. But if you uh, sorry, if you don't provide the host name, it wouldn't fail to validate it. Uh, it would just go and yep, that's great. Even though you know the host name would not necessarily match who you were connecting to, and there was one uh, particular client, Balsa, that uses Glib networking. This is a, a mail client for Gnome that actually did this. So if you were running Balsa, it could potentially connect to you know some different mail server as a result if you could trick it you know via DNS or some other manipulation. Uh, so, that was fixed in Glib networking to make sure that that is always validated and actually updated in Balsa as well to make sure it did provide uh, the expected hostname as well to the uh, Glib networking function. And last up, we had an update for Mailman. Uh, so, this was for Mailman in Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 long term support. In this case, uh, it was a uh, kind of arbitrary content injection. So uh, the is the archive login page. It's a private archive login page. So if your mailing list has a private archive, to be able to see that, you have to log in, you know, to this private uh, login page, and you know, you provide a username or whatever to that, and it would fail to validate that input, and then would you know echo that back to you, and so uh, it would then echo back arbitrary contents. You could inject whatever you want, you know, through a crafted URL. Uh, so that was fixed for Mailman. And that's it for this week in security updates. And a bit shorter this week, but a good thing too, because we've got this great interview coming up next, as I said at the start, with Joe and uh, Dr. David Reed, the scholar in residence at uh, UC Boulder.
1: Hey, everybody. Um, Thanks for joining us again on the Ubuntu Security Podcast. And this week, we have a special guest. We have uh, Dr. David Reed, who is a scholar in residence at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, Before that, he was the chief strategist at Cable Labs. He was at the FCC. Uh, He's got a PhD from Carnegie Mellon. He was my PhD advisor while I was still pursuing that, and all around a great person. So we're going to talk about two things this week, which is sort of the intersection of policy and cybersecurity. And then also um, talk about how um, there's this new um, sort of unloading of spectrum. So the spectrum auction and how that fits in with, with security. So welcome, David.
2: Thank you. And we're going to restart that PhD sometime, right?
1: Totally. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, now that the university is all distant, it'll be easy now. <laughs> so um <laughs> Uh, I guess it's sort of the first thing I wanted to go into was cybersecurity and policy. So, you know, security people tend to be in one of two camps, which is um, following the latest NIST guidance, NIST 853 or something like that, um, and just sort of applying policies. And that's where they focus their energy or um, hands on with code. So sort of both camps sort of see things differently. And the engineers... Want to engineer all the security problems away and the policy people want to uh, you know <laughs> dictate all the security problems away. Um, unfortunately those things have to combine and to be a good security person you need to think about policy and think about um, security. So um, one of the things that I think is unfortunate for when people think about policy with cybersecurity is that you're you're going to get a new policy from your CISO that says you can't browse online gaming sites from your laptop. And that's sort of the end of their thought of policy. But policy has a, a, a much bigger um, much bigger coverage than that. It can cover things that I think are really important right now, like data retention. Um, they can't have you, David. You're on this call. <laughs> so uh, we think about like data retention and data handling. Think about GDPR. So actually, in your experience, David, has GDPR had a... Uh, an impact on on what people are doing in security.
2: Well, um, so great question. Let me back up a little bit and 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 talk a little bit about how you're differentiating on policy here, and how there's policies that say are are part of how you how company operates its PKI, right? Mm-hmm. That are uh, mm-hmm. associated with procedures for uh, protecting. Um, you know, the certificates and and the the root uh, authority and the like. But what what we're talking about here in this case on policy is the public policy aspects Mm -hmm. of of uh, security. And that has increasingly become a um, a regular topic that we see in the headlines. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just of hacks, but it's now um, the security on the Internet is uh, is is something that's determining public, you know, uh, diplomacy between mm-hmm. nation states as China and, and uh, Iran and Russia take a different perspective on how they think the Internet should be uh, uh, managed within their countries versus in the United States and in and, and other Western countries with uh, open Internet philosophy. So a lot of that re- resolves around security issues. Right. And, and so um, what I you know, I, Having taught, I teach an internet policy class here at uh, CU Boulder. One of the things that I, I try to um, emphasize uh, with my students is, when do you regulate? When do you create policy? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, we now kind of have in this era of instant gratification over the internet of being able to tweet or email or do you know uh, Instagram out information. Mm-hmm we're very reactive and we'll say there ought to be a law (laughs) Mm -hmm. to protect against this and and so we're very reactive and as kind of a academic slash policy wonk i get concerned about that kind of you know run to one side of the ship versus the Mm -hmm. other whenever some topic comes up somebody gets hacked or uh we, we learn about something and so the um one of the key elements for figuring out when we regulate is to figure out first, what's the problem, mm-hmm. kind of what would be our policy objectives for that. And is there something here that the market's not going to, to solve here? So you, you have your economics background, mm-hmm. right? And sure so <laughs> You will appreciate the notion of a market failure, right? Yes. So well, we, mm-hmm. we want to have policies that in some sense are trying to fix some kind of a market failure and security cybersecurity has a unique set of market failures mm-hmm. upon which you can predicate a new policy but if you're just reacting to something on the surface and emotionally
1: you're going to lose that mm-hmm. all right and so yeah, and go ahead well i like just a really good example of sort of reactionary policies mm-hmm. are we ha- we have um, the government wanting to get into your phone if they're, because it's encrypted after an incident. Um, and then now you've got people saying, well, we should build back doors into phones or we should no longer allow end to end encryption because we need a back door into that. And that's sort of a, I think a knee jerk reaction to some current thing in the headlines. It's a really good example for what you're well, talking and, about. Well, and
2: and so if we were to break that down, the problem is at times there's bad guys with phones mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. there's information there that we want to get there that that we if we could mm-hmm. learn about that, then we could protect others, right? And so mm-hmm. society has this need often to get to information and versus individual privacy concerns, mm-hmm. which is not a right in the Constitution, right? Mm-hmm. So we got it it's but it's something mm-hmm. from a legal perspective that there are laws that are trying to protect individual um, needs to protect their own information. So you're gonna have to balance mm-hmm. that uh, if you're creating a policy for how the government might access mm-hmm. the uh, information. And as we know, there's kind of a history, some of some of the the, the, app, the the security apparatus having clandestine back doors mm-hmm. and that lacks transparency. and mm-hmm. so. If we have policy objectives that are created according to certain principles, such as transparency Mm -hmm. so that we have a a sense for uh, what is happening, then um, that's good uh, policy. You know, so some of the market failures that, you know, might be interesting uh, for your audience uh, on the cybersecurity side. One is there's misaligned incentives often uh, in the sense that you have an IT department. They're just trying to get something done. You know, in a bank or something, and they might put together some security approach, but it's really not their information or their bank account mm-hmm. or their their money that's at stake, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a misaligned incentive. That potentially, though, you know, you have a problem with the customer, and this can happen in health, and mm-hmm. you know, in terms of of uh, health HIPAA. information as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they might be much more substantially harmed than those who are uh, implementing. The other is an information asymmetry, mm-hmm. right? So remember markets, great thing about markets mm-hmm. is Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no way you can replicate all that distribu- distributed sources of information that figure out what's the right price. Mm-hmm. You just cannot do that. But with um, the the problem that we have is that there's a lack of an incentive for people to disclose they've been hacked, right? Mm-hmm. Companies. and so. Even though it might help society in general, if a company were to disclose, hey, this is the hack, this is what they did, so that Mm -hmm. others could prepare for it, because they're concerned about their Mm -hmm. reputation, they don't do that, right?
1: Right. And so we heard for a really long time that it didn't really matter if you've been hacked because your stock price goes up. But somebody just released a report, I can't remember who it is, um, I'll put it in the show notes, um, that over over a three year period, yes, stock price does go up for a company that's been hacked, but it's at a significantly lower percentage in the market. So while you could say you look at target, target stock price went up, but it underperformed the market over three years by almost 30 percent. So there is we actually are now seeing that there is an impact, but but to your point, why if you' if no one's saying you have to disclose it, why disclose it at all? Because then it won't affect your, your stock price. Well, and I even, was... if
2: you, even if there's a disclosure requirement, there's an incentive
1: mm-hmm. to not,
2: right? Right. And so that is a reason for a, a policy, say, that would say you need to disclose this. And so a lot of mm-hmm. the different uh, uh, privacy um, mm-hmm. uh, laws like the GDPR mm-hmm. uh, do require a disclosure within a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. You know, a week or less, say, of of a hack in order to uh, address that information asymmetry, because mm-hmm. not only can other people, not necessarily other companies uh, be able to react and utilize that information, but it's also that how do you how do you know what amount of security investment there should be? If nobody's really talking mm-hmm. about it. Yep. It's very, you, you, you know, the market won't act efficiently, right? So it's very easy to overinvest out of fear or underinvest out of the lack of information.
1: Right. And GDPR is an interesting one because it has that financial incentive to, if you get hacked, to make you say, okay, well, it's it's, I believe it's $20 million or 4%, whatever number is greater for each incident. So you can kind of look at you can help d- define your budget in a, in some way by looking at that, saying, well, one incident will cost us four percent of our uh, of our um, of our annual um, uh, right. sales. So so that's 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 one sort of incentive, and it's a rare, I would say. I was going to lead you into a question, David, which is, <laughs> do you think that so far the internet has basically done a good job of creating its own? Own policy, it's its own. Um, we, you know, uh, think of PCI, PCI, the payment card industry, PCI DSS. Well, that's how you secure your environment for taking credit cards, and that's that's sort of an industry standard. It's been adopted by everybody. And then you've got something like FIPS 140-2 from NIST. So FIPS, you know, that covers your your um, your, algor- your crypto algorithms, and it's part of if you're going to deploy into FedRAMP or um, or DoD or something like that. But that covers just your crypto. And you have to do it to check some boxes, but PCI it covers your entire operation. You know how you do log retention, how you secure things, and it seems to me that the industry is doing a better a better job of creating effective security from a policy, whereas the government with FIPS is only securing one small thing. What, what sort of your your thought on industry versus versus government for setting up policy?
2: Well, so. Again, the, the the industry is going to have more knowledge about mm-hmm. what they're trying to protect, right? Than, mm-hmm. than the government. So the government will have mechanisms through the Administrative Procedures Act to try to gather and get comment and get that in. Mm-hmm. But to the extent to which that's not as efficient, the industry is going to know how profile, you know how, how system how systemic mm-hmm. that's going to to they're going to need in order to adopt it. The, you know, one of the market failures that you have to be concerned about are externalities um, where, you know, it's easy for there to be free riders Mm -hmm. in the sense that because the security is only as strong as the weakest link in the chain, if they're not going to invest, why should I invest, right? So -hmm. when you have industry standards and best practices, that's really good, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so that typically will be better often, then the government, unless there's some market failure that's happening there that for whatever reason it's not getting adopted. Mm-hmm. And if it, if for whatever reason the industry is not reacting enough, mm-hmm. reactive enough say to credit card thefts or there's some problem of fraud that is hurting consumers, then, then you need to step in. Um, but otherwise, you know, the government can help with that information asymmetry by establishing mm-hmm. best practices.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, but um, Maybe even a
1: clearinghouse for um, for 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 cyber data. So if you kind of look at the mission of of US CERT in DHS, they're supposed to share share data about current risks. That's right. Um, so do you think? So I'm trying to lead you into our second second topic now. Okay. Um, so to your point, so I think if you look at broadband providers, um, they're mostly monopolies, so they usually don't have to do any do much to stay to stay your only deal in town. Um, you know, I think we were we were both at Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh, and I know a lot of those areas are run by sort of local monopolies for your their, their local broadband. I, in fact, have someone on my team who lives in the area and they have no choice. They can't, you know, they can't complain. They can't ask for a data catheter removed, can't ask for a static IP, things like that. Um, but where you've got, um, That's where the government can step in and say, "Okay, with with or with IPv6, um, if you're going to deploy it across everything, they actually can put some weight into that discussion because otherwise the market won't make them react because none of these companies have have really um, any competition.
2: Well, so, uh, you know, it's one market failure can be a lack of competition. Right. And and, and not having enough players and certainly um, that is a, a possibility in some areas, particularly, um, you know, in, in some of the more urban suburban areas where there hasn't been investment by uh, a second, you know, the cable op, cable industry, with the Doxis platform. And f- full disclosure, I helped develop the as part of the team the Doxis platform mm-hmm. when I was at Cable Labs, and we did a great job. Right, it's a great mm-hmm. platform, very efficient, and. Um, and so there are some areas where there aren't m- many providers, and uh, as a result, the the FCC has been moving forward to allocate uh, a, a lot of spectrum to allow a new broadband providers to come in, and not just mobile providers, although mm-hmm. it could be, you know, the, your your cellular company that will get this spectrum, but also for fixed wireless providers to come in and use this spectrum in order to provide a wireless. It's called Fixed Wireless Access Service, right? Mm -hmm. And they're called WISPs, wireless ISPs. Um, And so there's a whole tranche of spectrum that's come out from the FCC over the last couple of years and a whole bunch of different bands. If you go to the FCC website, you can just uh, Google the FCC fast plan and uh, it just knocks out all the different bands that they're uh, allocating. Um, And they're also allocating a lot of unlicensed spectrum. All right, and so uh like with Mm -hmm. wi-fi there are a lot of companies that are tweaking the wi-fi protocol a little bit with some Mm -hmm. proprietary software in order to make it work for like a fixed wireless access type of Mm -hmm. approach because the chipsets are so cheap and uh and the fcc at the six gigahertz band for example just allocated over a gigahertz of new spectrum there so
1: a lot of spectrum
2: yeah so it's there's a Uh, A band, the 5 gigahertz band has almost 600 megahertz. They're adding another 1.2 to that. So you will have a lot of spectrum that's available now. And I think you will see a lot of uh, different new players coming in. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, they are deploying. um, The FCC is uh, subsidizing that in rural areas, right? Because they they have very little infrastructure today Mm -hmm. and so um they just have kicked off there'll be an auction later this year on what's called the rural digital opportunity fund which is 20 billion dollars and uh so they will be deploying um you know they are subsidizing the deployment of Mm -hmm. uh broadband and i imagine in a lot of those areas even though they're putting in incentives to try to get fiber deployed there Mm -hmm. Fiber can be pretty expensive in rural mm-hmm. areas, right? And so there's a big debate now on, on whether there should be. Everyone gets fiber, uh, versus whether you know you can use a market approach and let fixed wireless access provide it as well.
1: As someone who is on um, wireless right now, uh, I think that that'll that sort of has to be the way because of the big distances you cover in in, in rural America and running, you know cutting up the side of the street to run cable is, is just isn't going to, isn't going to happen. But when they build this, right, they're building it from, so they're sort of just getting it out to everybody. And I hope that security will be thought into design. So for my connection that I'm on right now, you no, know, I'm on a night. I'm on some 1918 addresses and I can, I can scan every single customer because there's no, they didn't do any, they don't do any firewalling any ACLing. Um, it's, it's kind of luckily there aren't a lot of people on this on this provider, but there's really no security thought into the design of of my wireless uh, broadband that I've got here, and I'm assuming that's not going to be any part of 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 this new rollout with well, the world. So
2: actually, the FCC is doing something. They just oh, did cool. it last week. Um, they just uh, passed basically a declared ruling, which is just kind of a summary trying to summary uh, decision to. Uh, remove any uncertainty that rule that states that anybody who receives this funding has to uh comply with uh supply chain security requirements right? okay and so uh, as you uh, probably know a lot better than i do who the who the players might be mm-hmm. that uh, the government has concern uh, that that their equipment is is mm-hmm. placed into the ISP infrastructure, the, mm-hmm. the routers. We're not talking like fiber cable, right? We're talking the yeah. electronics. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, uh, if you are receiving this support, you a um, have can, you know cannot use. You have to have a protect your supply chain, and have to put in a like an annual report to the government mm-hmm. telling you that you're complying okay. uh, with it. So they they are doing that now. Beyond that. Um, there is, a, four or five years ago, FCC's got this committee, it's called CSRIC, you know, it's just one of these acronym mm-hmm. soup, soup groups, but um, they went through the NIST cybersecurity framework,
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: and you're familiar with that? I am
1: quite familiar. <laughs>
2: okay, and you know, it. there are a lot of different, uh, as you wait, work through the framework, mm-hmm. a lot of different Things that it suggests you do, best practices and potential mm-hmm. standards to address particular concerns that mm-hmm. you're implementing in order to for your risk management program for mm-hmm. for cybersecurity, right? And so they have m- highlighted recommended steps within that mm-hmm. for those companies that are uh, broadband providers. But beyond that, it's all voluntary. They haven't done much beyond that.
1: Well, well, it's at least at least it's a great start, and. Um, I think at this point, this might be our, our longest ever um, okay. uh, budget security podcast. That's um, what so happens
2: d- when you have a professor, right? He-
1: yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> and an ex professor, next thing you know, we're talking all day. Um, David, thank you so much for joining sure. us. And um, everybody listen next week. We're going to hit stop. Thanks a lot, Joe. Know. I appreciate the
2: opportunity.
0: And thanks, Joe and uh, David, for doing the interview. That was really great. All right, so just one other thing to go over in community news for this week. Uh, I want to announce the, I guess, relaunch or the, the relocation of the Ubuntu security notices. So uh, traditionally, these have lived at usn.ubuntu.com. Uh, we have now integrated these in the main ubuntu.com website. So they now live at ubuntu.com slash security slash notices uh they look a lot fresher a lot nicer and in particular we want to thank uh the design and web teams at canonical for doing uh all the work really on those uh yeah they look a lot prettier now um and i guess a lot more clearer and to the point as well so thanks guys uh, for all your help working on that uh if you are still referring to any old notices at usn.com they will automatically get redirected so yeah next time you go to check out a usn uh you'll notice that nice new fresh look all right uh so that's it for this week's episode uh, as usual, if you want to get in contact with the Ubuntu security team, you can reach us at security at ubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network. Uh, we do have the security section on discourse.ubuntu.com if you are already there as part of the Ubuntu community. And finally, we are on Twitter at ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Uh, I should note that next week, uh, there is not going to be an episode of the Ubuntu security podcast. That's because it is the uh, mid product cycle sprint. Uh, so myself and joe and others will be attending that uh, virtually uh so yeah we will do a podcast episode though the following week uh, so yeah look out for that in two weeks time all right so yeah thanks again everyone for listening again for another week i'll talk to you soon but in the meantime keep calm because we've got you back bye